Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. In pursuit of the natural laws of the universe, human beings have accomplished remarkable things. We've outlined the principles of gravity and thermodynamics. We've built enormous machines to dig into the deepest part of the Earth to understand what happens at the shortest quantum distances. And we've built equally large machines to take pictures of the most distant parts of the cosmos. Still, there remain a number of foundational gaps in our knowledge, gaps that have allowed some wild ideas to take root. Some scientists hypothesize that with every decision we make, our universe forks into multiverses, that consciousness arises from the quantum movements of microtubules, that the universe itself is conscious, or that there is this cat in a box and not in a box at the same time. These ideas and related big questions about the nature of the universe are the subject of particle physicist Sabina Hossenfelder's new book, Existential Physics. In it, she contends that many of these far-out theories put forward without evidence are on par with religious belief. Physics, Hassenfelder thinks, does not yet provide the answer to all our questions, and it's doubtful that it ever will. Sabina Hassenfelder, a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies in Germany and the creator of the YouTube channel Science Without the Gobbledygook, joins us to untangle quantums, rearrange strings, and tell us what we know now about physics, what we can't know yet, and what we might never know. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Sabina. <laughs> Thanks so much. Lovely to talk to you. So on the jacket of your book, you're called a contrarian physicist in addition to a particle one. So what have you done to earn that label? Um, my first book <laughs> got me this label. Um, I've, I've argued that a lot of what gets published in the foundations of physics these days is pretty much nonsense. I've also argued against building a next bigger particle collider because I think it won't find anything relevant. Uh, that certainly hasn't made me many friends among particle physicists. How do you feel about the other end of the spectrum, building shinier and shinier telescopes to look at things further and further away? Well, it's always a question of cost-benefit, uh, right? Like, is, is the... Uh, is the expenditure worth what we get out of it? And I think for what telescopes are concerned, at the moment, they're worth the money. Like if you're talking about the Webb telescope, there are so many important things that we can learn from it. Uh, for example, about what dark matter did in the early universe. Uh, so I, I think we're, we're getting out uh, a return on the investment. But when we're talking about building this next bigger collider, which would actually be even more expensive than the Webb telescope already was, there, there's nothing really important that we would gain in terms of insight. You know, we, we'd certainly be able to measure some constants in a standard model to higher precision and that kind of stuff, and particle physicists would be happy. But when you're talking about gaining big insights about some of those big open questions that, that you mentioned, um, chances are very, very small. Speaking of those big open questions, you know, your book is not the first one to address, you know, are we alone in the universe or... You know, it, does physics rule out free will? What made you want to add yours to the pile? And what makes your answers to these questions different from like Zen and the art of particle physics? 
Yeah, you won't be surprised to hear that I read a lot of those books. <laughs> I get them for review. They they pile up <laughs> in corners of the room. Uh, and and I, I find that a lot of them oversell this mind-blowing, baffled, oh my God, physics is so awesome uh, aspect. Uh, and I wanted to help people to tell how much of this is actually true and how much of it is just blah, blah. Um, so what, what I do in my book is um, I go through all those big open questions. How did the universe begin? Can particles think? Um, is your grandmother still alive because of something with quantum mechanics or other? Uh, and I explain how much of this do we really know? How much of it is speculation? How much can you believe? Or as I say, it's it's a scientific science doesn't really uh, say anything about. And every once in a while, I, I also say, um, okay, so we don't really know this thing, but I think it's so-and-so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't trust me. Come to your own conclusion. Yeah, I think that uh, distinction between ascientific and unscientific comes out a lot, I think, with everything that we get in the mainstream media, you know, all these big sexy ideas about multiverses and loops and conformal cycles and inflation. And I really don't know what any of those things are. But I was gratified <laughs> that your response to them was basically the one I've sort of instinctively had, but didn't feel brave enough to say because I don't have a PhD, which is like, cool story, bro. <laughs> like, where's your proof? Yeah, right. I think that that's pretty much the right attitude to have. Um, they're good stories. And uh, don't get me wrong. I think they have a value in it by themselves because they inspire people, gives you something to think about. Maybe there are other universes and there are copies of me living in those universes. They're doing other things. Um, you know, I, I think that's pretty interesting, but you shouldn't mistake it for science. Like we don't actually know that those universes exist, no matter how many physicists say the opposite. Uh, it's just not true. And uh, I wanted to make this point very clearly in my book. So where did these ideas come from? You know, how how can so many physicists come up with these stories? Like, where is the room within, I guess, the natural laws that we know for them to posit something like this? That's a very interesting question. Uh, I, I've actually thought about this a lot. Um, it differs a little bit from one problem to another. Um, I think in most cases is that um, they are really reaching the boundaries of science and cross over into philosophy, but they don't really notice. I think it's partly because most of them don't have a training in, in philosophy. And neither did I originally, you know, when I, when I worked in particle physics and that kind of stuff. So, for example, when you're talking about the multiverse, the origin of this belief is in all of the different versions of the multiverse, of which, which there are many. Um, Brian Greene, I think, lists nine in his book. <laughs> I've, I've only named like the four biggest ones. Where this all comes from is that they have a theory um, that they deal with, like for the early universe or for theory of everything, like string theory, that kind of thing. And it has certain mathematics that corresponds to what we observe. It says the universe expands and that's something that we observe. Or it says the particles which have a certain interaction and that's something we observe. And that's all well and fine. But then they say, and there's other mathematics 
in those theories, which does not correspond to what we observe, but I also believe that it exists. And it's at this point where you solidly cross over into something which is no longer scientifically justifiable. You can believe that the structures that those mathematical things correspond to actually do exist, but you don't have to because there's no possible observation that we can make that would actually show us that they are real. Do you think that slippage happens to between not just, you know, physics and philosophy, but like math into language? Thinking of like Schrodinger's cat or like any other member of his zoo and you try to explain you know a mathematical equation in words it sounds insane half the time (laughs) yeah um I think that's part of the problem especially when it comes to quantum mechanics it's certainly true it's just difficult to make any sense of it it's one thing to say okay we can write it down we can calculate it and the math says Uh, okay, cats can be both dead and alive, but what the heck does this mean, right? (laughs) And and so we're trying to phrase the mathematics in words, but our words are just insufficient. And certainly that's part of the reason for those multiverse tales, especially for what the many words interpretation uh, is concerned. People are just trying to make sense out of this mathematics. And one of the possible avenues is to say, well, the, the cat is alive in one universe and it died in another universe. Physicists over-rely on the mathematics. It's no longer just a tool. They think it is reality. <laughs> um, and, and, and so this is where those stories come from. But it also has the consequence that um, we, we're relying on those uh, mathematical descriptions. It imposes limits on us that we just can't overcome so long as we use this mathematics. For example, when we're talking about the beginning of the universe, with our mathematics, we have to use something which is called an initial state. So it's basically we have to postulate how the universe looked like very early on. Um, and then we have an ex- equation that allows us to calculate what happened later. And then we have to check that uh, what the theory predicts actually agrees with what we observed. So far, so good. But now the problem is... For this theory to be scientific, it has to explain something. And uh, if you want to quantify it, this means that this initial state has to be simple. Like we have to be able to write it down somehow. Now, if you um, ask what happened earlier, like what happened before this initial phase where everything was very strongly condensed together in a small volume, which you call the Big Bang, then you can add a more complicated story before this. Like there might have been a multiverse or there might have been an earlier universe which collapsed. And so, so this is called a cyclic uh, universe. But it could have been something else. It could have been a five-dimensional black hole or it could have been a collision of higher-dimensional membranes. So this, these are all stories that physicists have made up and there, there are many others. But the thing is, they're not scientifically justifiable because they make a simple story more complicated. And this is just a limit that is imposed on us from this particular mathematics. We're only allowed to call something a scientific theory if it gives us a simple story. I mean, what would you say to all of the people who are really into multiverses and really into 
strings and all of this jazz and like dreaming of these different possibilities and these stories that are cooked up in these gaps who who say who might say like well that just sucks the magic right out of science or like you know there's no imagination anymore if you can't have little stories like that so i'm i'm not at all opposed to those stories i i think they're really interesting and uh, there's certainly a reason why people like to read about them right or why science fiction writers and fantasy writers take their inspiration from physics, like if you read about wormholes or time slowing down, black holes, uh, multiverses, um, quantum uncertainty, uh, all that kind of stuff, teleportation, it's all inspired by physics. So physics brings up all those possibilities and we find them inspiring and there is a value in that. I don't want to take this away from people. Um, but I think you shouldn't confuse it with science. I think we have to be honest about what we really know, what we're confident to say this exists, like we're, we're pretty confident black holes exist. When it comes to other universes, no, we, we don't know and we'll probably never know. What's the danger in it? What's the danger in this slippage of physicists talking, you know, with with certainty about these things that are not really certain or not being clear about when they're slipping from the scientific into the ascientific or even the unscientific. Yeah, you could say that in the foundations of physics, like if we're talking about stuff that we can't really do anything with, um, what does it even matter? And this is actually an argument that a lot of my colleagues put forward. They're like, what's the harm? It gets people interested in science, right? But I think the potential harm is that people just think all of science is bullshit, basically, right? Because you can make everything up, you can get it published. I mean, multiverse papers get published. You know, people write papers about unobservable universes. And then you have to ask the question, like, how do I know that this isn't happening in other areas of science? Now, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that at least the areas of science that I know a little bit about, it's not quite as bad. Uh, but then not everybody um, has pretty much all their friends being scientists with a PhD at some universities, right? And so I think for, for many people, it's like really, really hard to tell. You know, if they're allowed to do bullshit research uh, in the foundations of physics, how do I know not that the same thing isn't going on in medicine or in climate science? Or, I mean, it also, I think, opens the door for people to dismiss it, to say, like, well, these people are cooking up theories about multiverses, like, what they're saying about the Earth warming isn't true either. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so what do you think the, the best thing we can do as sort of lay people without PhDs, without a ton of physicist friends? Or what do you want us to think about when considering these questions from a scientific lens? Yeah, that that's really difficult. I mean, for one thing, I think if you read stories about the foundations of physics, then a lot of science writers over rely on mathematics. They tend to think that just because you can write down equations for it, there has to be some truth to it. And I think this is really important to keep in mind if, you, if you're talking about the foundations of physics. It's just not the case. You can write down mathematics, beautiful mathematics, consistent mathematics that doesn't describe anything we observe. 
And a lot of those uh, headlines that you read about physicists say dark matter may be this, or physicists say the universe may have begun this way, and physicists say we may make contact to parallel universes and so on, because they have a piece of math and, and they can write it down. It doesn't mean anything. You know, you give me the your wildest thing and I can write down mathematics for it. I mean, are there any big questions with I guess, simple answers or a simple story attached to it that are left? Because there, there's all kinds of big questions in your book, very philosophical questions that physics answers. But like, is there lurking out there, you know, an equivalent to the law of gravity that we haven't figured out yet? Or are we sort of just like chipping away at the margins of what we know? Or questions left to answer that you think we can answer scientifically rather than ascientifically? So I definitely think the answer is yes, and I, I can give you some examples uh, for this. Uh, but I also have to add that I think a lot of my colleagues would answer this question with pretty much no, leaving aside things like quantum gravity. That's how do we combine the quantum theory with Einstein's theory of gravity, which we just haven't succeeded in doing yet. And the reason that a lot of my colleagues think that one day we'll find it and that'll pretty much be the end of the story, is that they think if we have such a theory, it will be pretty much useless. Um, and the, they have reasons to think there's some estimates based on you know the size of certain constants, uh, which seems to say it'll be useless in everyday life. Right? It might be useful to explain uh, what's going on inside black holes and, like, and that kind of stuff, but nothing that we can ever build something with. And I think that's just wrong. Because uh, this theory will tell us something about the way that quantum mechanics works. And quantum mechanics is the theory that underlies the functionality of all devices that we currently use, basically, that we're talking through. Uh, and so I think what's going to happen if we manage to discover this um, evidence for this theory and we work out the correct theory, that, that'll, that'll bring up new questions. And uh, eventually, it, it'll also have an impact on technology. To add another example, in quantum mechanics, there's this big open problem, what's a measurement? <laughs> and it always sounds a little bit silly, like this is such a, such a simple question, like how can it be so difficult? Well, the issue is that in quantum mechanics, we typically, and this is what physicists really like to do, we deal with really, really simple systems, like we're talking single quanta of light or a few electrons, that kind of thing. But you can't actually see them, right? So you have to pipe them into some kind of measurement apparatus that amplifies the signal. And then you read it out with the computer and you put it on a screen, that kind of stuff. But this amplification mechanism is a really complicated interaction of loads and loads of particles. And we don't know how to describe it. it. It's a really difficult question. I think it has an answer. And if we manage to answer this question, that they'll tell us what actually happens with Schrodinger's cat. Huh. I think I kind of get it. Couldn't you just like build a better computer to like or like a better microscope to see the quanta or is that just a question to ask? <laughs> no, that, that's an excellent question. Um so the interesting thing is that um this is pretty much what's happening with current technological development. So um, we're reaching this limit from both sides. On the one side, 
we're making those quantum objects that that we measure bigger and bigger. So I just said, typically we deal with with a few electrons or that kind of thing. But physicists are now putting bigger and bigger objects into quantum states, molecules. Uh, they've tried uh, viruses, I think, but they're also using like uh, microscopic disks and that kind of stuff. So you're making your quantum objects bigger and bigger. So this is the one side. And on the other side, the detectors are becoming smaller and smaller. So this just is this miniaturization um, process, which, which is also going on with our phones and, and, and so on. Um, and so um, at some point, those have to cross over into each other, right? So, so we'll, we'll reach a size where something can somehow be a detector and be the quantum object that is being detected by the detector. And then it's the question, what happens? And uh, we just don't know. We, we, we don't have the theory for it. Quantum mechanics doesn't tell us. Quantum mechanics basically says, well, we recognize the detector when we see one. That's a good example of like a, a basic kind of question that we don't know the answer to, that we could know the answer to. Um, contrasted with like another big question in your book, which I think underlines a lot of the sub questions you have, which is, has physics ruled out free will? Which is very funny because I think that's a very big question to which there you, you do have an answer. No. <laughs> um, it has merely ruled out certain ideas about free will. But People are still grappling with this, and it seems like now we're back into the slippage of physics into into philosophy. Yeah, so, so the issue with talking about free will is that no two people mean exactly the same. So we have this personal experience of something that we uh, call free will or that we've been told is called free will, uh, but we don't really agree on what it means. So the way that I try to address this question of free will is that I, I try to say what we know about the way that we can possibly make decisions, given that the brain is made of particles and we know the laws for those particles. And so if we look at those laws, we know that they are deterministic. So what's going to happen follows from an initial state in the past, except for the occasional quantum random event that happens. So we have this mixture of this time evolution that's determined by something in the past, plus this little randomness that's, that's sprinkled over it. This is as much as we know. So now the question is, given that you know this, would you say that you have free will? Depends. How are we defining free will? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, would, would take this um, determinism together with something that you have no influence on to be a weird description of something that's supposedly free and willed by me. And so this this would be at least my personal answer to the question. I just think free will is an incoherent idea that doesn't really make a lot of sense if you look at what we know about the laws of nature. But other people have found other definitions for free will which are well compatible with that and I don't I don't really have any problem with that. But the future is still determined up to those random events that come from quantum mechanics. What's interesting is I think, as you touch on briefly in the book, it sort of dovetails with more humanistic approaches 
you know, we're recognizing more and more like, ah, if you grow up wealthy in a nice neighborhood and go to schools, like you're going to commit less crime. If you're abused, you're probably going to recommit the cycle of abuse. In some ways, I think people are recognizing that, yeah, not every choice you have is completely open. Not every opportunity you have is equal. It's an interesting sort of dovetailing, I think, of like physical laws, natural laws, and sort of a more, you could say, progressive understanding of society. Yeah, um, I think that that's a really good point. Um, I think if we don't really reflect on what we mean by free will and how much of our choices are really free, we tend to overestimate how much influence we really have, um, both on our own reactions, uh, but also on how much we can change society in one way or another. So if if we um, expect too much of people, basically, what they can do based on their own free will, then we may not take the necessary societal actions um, to make a change. I mean, decision making, I think, fundamentally, or like how to choose, how to make a decision, how to make peace with a bad decision, how to make a good decision, I mean, like this, that a lot, I think a lot of the questions in your book could sort of be simplified down into this question. It's just like, how do I behave? How do I decide if my initial state from yesterday and the day before that, and then before my birth and my parents and the, all the way back down to the universe is sort of, is, is determined in the way that we've talked about. And if, you know, hypothetically, there could be different decision inflection points. I mean, do you, do you just like ignore those and live your life? Like, how do you square these things with like everyday existence walking around? Well, I wouldn't say exactly that I ignore them. Like, I've, I've literally written a book about it, right? <laughs> so, uh, but um, I think for for practical purposes, like the way that I use my brain, it doesn't really make it doesn't really make any difference. Like, I I make my decisions exactly the same way that I made them before I ended up studying physics. Um, but I think it has kind of shifted my view on how much influence we we really have. I, I think I, I think of myself more as an observer of the story of the universe that is rolling out. And yeah, I, I have to do my computation in my brain. I have to come to some decisions. And so I play a role in this story. Um, and I don't yet know what's what's going to happen. So so my role may be a small one or a big one. Um, I don't know. So um, I think I approach it with uh, curiosity. We have links in the show notes to Sabina Hossenfelder's new book, Existential Physics, as well as her YouTube channel, Science Without the Gobbledygook. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>